these children were ripped from their families. This really goes back to the beginning of our, our country. Uh, our constitution mentions Indians uh, only three times, but uh, doesn't really treat them as, uh, as full people. And Indians didn't become American citizens actually till 1924. They're in these schools, they probably know very well that their parents probably have died. They, they were deprived of the right to speak their own language. They're forced to speak a language which belongs to a, a group of people that, that was waging a war against them. I just can't imagine how hard it is for these kids to, to go through a life like this. It wasn't just violence against Native Americans, it was violence against African-Americans, Latinx, uh, and even poor white Americans. And this is not just against them, but also, you know, you have America's big entry into, you know, global imperialism in uh, the Philippines in the late 1800s, where it's becoming a global phenomenon. The Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Welcome to The Chat Lounge. I'm Tuyun. Our topic today is the situation of Native Americans in the United States and their struggle to defend their rights. Joining our chat are Harvey Zoden, Senior Fellow at the Center for China and Globalization, who's also former Vice President of ABC TV Network in New York. Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics, East China Normal University in Shanghai. And Dr. John Gon, Professor of Economics, China's University of International Business and Economics. John will give us an outsider's view on this issue. So the U.S. Department of um, Interior has released what's said to be the first of its kind report on federal Indian boarding schools. The report says at least 500 children died in the country's Native American boarding schools over the course of 150 years, and the death toll is expected to rise as the investigation continues in the 400-plus boarding schools that were operated in nearly 40 states. So before we dive into the details of the report, let's get a brief idea of what it was like living in those boarding schools. I think we can have a rough idea from um, the 2017 Canadian, I think it's Canadian film, Indian Horse, in which the Native American children were physically, mentally, and even sexually abused. But in reality, was it really that bad? So uh, I'm going to start with uh, Harvey. Do you have any idea what it was like living in those boarding schools? I think it's uh, really difficult to imagine. And if we take uh, some famous author like uh, Charles Dickens and uh, his Victorian time, that uh, it was much worse than those schools uh, then. I think that uh, really these were schools for scandal. And what you had was a situation was with students who were uh, taken away from their parents, like in Canada, and whose uh, 
upbringing whose education was specifically designed to uh, create a cultural genocide. That's exactly the words that the Canadian Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission used in their report in Canada. And the American schools sound very similar. Of course, those schools, uh, even though they persist to modern times, were founded in a more uh, imperialistic era, in an era that were uh, much more racist. But uh, we're still racist today, unfortunately, and in my country, the United States, those people, those Native Americans uh, still are discriminated against on uh, many levels and by many dimensions. So I, I think in short, uh, these people were, these children were ripped from their families. They were taught to uh, disown their cultures. They were assimilated using uh, military uh, techniques in which their identities were stripped away from them. And uh, it must have been awful. And I'm sure it must have left a, a stain on them, a psychological damage that uh, lasts for a, a whole lifetime. Harvey, do you know anybody who once went to such schools? No, I, I don't. I, uh, I don't. What about a Joseph? Well, I, I will also try to describe the school. I, I don't know anyone who went there. I think one of the things about the Native American subculture is that unless you live in close proximity to an Indian reservation, then in all likelihood, you know, you have very little interaction with with Native Americans. So, so you know, disproportionately we have Native American reservations in um, uh, Oklahoma and a few other states, and I'm not from that part of the country. But um, so where I grew up in, in other parts and living primarily on the East Coast and Southeast and Northeast, there are Native Americans, but they, they're much more assimilated. Although there were Indian boarding schools, for example, one of the descriptions that, that comes right at the start of the report is uh, the the Apaches who were defeated, you know, led by Geronimo. His uh, group was taken out of, uh, taken into captivity and sent to Florida. And then their children were sent all the way north to Pennsylvania to this uh, Indian boarding school where they endured these difficult uh, conditions. As Harvey was saying, the, the militarization, forcing them to cut their hair, not allowing them to practice their religion. In a lot of cases, these schools were set up with support from religious organizations. So religious organizations would apply for these government grants to try to evangelize or, or you know, change these children into assimilated Christians. The point I want to make here is that these problems... We talk about them being intergenerational. We talk about Native Americans having the highest poverty rates in the United States, uh, 25%. The recent data uh, just from the last several months is that uh, Native Americans were hit harder by COVID than any other minority group uh, in the United States because the way that they separated them out and the way they create, they moved them to the middle of nowhere, to these very undesirable pieces of land, most Americans don't have any real interaction with them, except for people who live in close proximity to those communities. So it's kind of like this hidden problem, but it, it remains a problem that is still continuing to this day in terms of the poverty rates and the death rates associated with the outbreak. Mm. And uh, John, when you studied and lived in the States, did you ever 
try to learn about the history of Native Americans, or did you ever notice their existence, say, people around you, anyone who was Native American, given the population of Native Americans only accounts for like some 2% of the population of the yeah. country? Yeah, certainly I've interacted with uh, Native American Indians uh, when I was in the United States, but I have never really uh, delved deeply into that part of the history that is that tragic and that depressing uh, to read. This is starting to be discovered, you know, starting in Canada, but now the United States government is also delving into this. It's a part of history that is not very well known beforehand, and starting to uh, get more exposed to these stories, I started to imagine what kind of hardship these kids must have gone through at the time. Now, Joseph brought a very good point. Uh, you know, the, 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 these, according to the official language, these kids were taken away from their parents by the government. But, you know, let's ask this question. Who, who would, in, their, in the same mind, to give your own kids to the government, right? I mean, nobody would really do that. And I think you know, we have, there's a historical context here. During the most part of the 19th century, this is a, a population, a group of population against which the United States government is waging a war for the most part. And these people, of course, were totally defeated. Um, many of these kids uh, lost their parents probably in the war. And they probably haven't even seen their parents being killed right in the their eyes, but it's, it's impossible. So I think this, you know, this, this is a very important historical context uh, that uh, these kids were the victims, the surviving family members of a genocidal war against the whole set of population. And, and they somehow survived and they were basically rounded up by the government and sent to these schools. Think about you know what these kids must have gone through, right? I mean, they, they're in these schools. They probably know very well that their parents probably have died. They lost their parents and relatives. Uh, they probably know also that they will never be in touch with the parents again. They were deprived of the right to speak their own language. They're forced to speak a language which belongs to a group of people that, that was waging a war against them. And they have to learn the things belonging to that group, you know, this must be very, very hard on these kids. I mean, even from a psychological perspective, you know, mm. I, I just can't imagine the harshness and, and the, how hard it is for these kids to, to go through a life like this. Yeah. It must be very, very horrible. Indeed. I remember when I told you that we were going to talk about this and you were a little bit surprised that what? Um, this also happened in the U.S.? You were thinking that it's just happened in Canada. But I guess um, the other two guests of our discussion today, who are both originally from the United States, Joseph and Harvey, you were not surprised at all. I bet you won't be surprised. But as we just mentioned, the investigation was initially started in June 2020. Uh, 2021, excuse me. It's only like a year ago, and it's said to be the first of its kind. So, Joseph, why didn't the investigation start until last year? Well, let me answer that question directly, but then I want to circle back to something um, that to provide some context. The, the reason why the, the the investigation started last year is because Deb Holland, who's a Native American, 
became Secretary of the Interior. And when she took office uh, with the Biden administration, that's a cabinet secretary level position. Uh, the Department of Interior oversees uh, Native American affairs. And she ordered this report because it, it is an issue among uh, Native Americans. And, and she's very sympathetic to those concerns as a Native American, but also she had built her political brand on that. So because we got a Native American as as Department of Interior uh, head, this research went forward. The research did note that it was hamstrung by COVID, uh, that it didn't receive enough funding, and um, and that there's still a lot more to discover and a lot more to, to work through, that this is just uh, the initial step. So uh, we should expect more things coming. But the broader context here is to remember that the two original sins of, um, and, and one could say there, there are three original sins. The, the first original sin of America as a, as a new country is the genocide and dispossession of, of Native Americans, right? But simultaneously, African slavery. Mm. And then a little bit later, we have the uh, colonialism, uh, the imperialism associated with taking lands from the Mexican people and and building out this country and then you know also discriminating ultimately against Latinos and Mexican Americans and um, so forth and so on. So the context here, the first context is that as I said before, Native Americans, they end up getting corralled and limited and more or less contained to these very remote areas of the country. Whereas in the broader cultural context, the presence of Latinos and African-Americans is much greater in, in everyday American society. And so we confront those sins much more directly in our inner cities, in uh, our migrant farms, farm workers, and so forth and so on. Uh, although we start to see some reforms that with civil rights in the 1960s, and these, these will also be extended to Native Americans, the Native American presence in the American consciousness is not that profound. Starting in the 1970s, we start to have some radical movements, not that radical, but radical for the moment called you know, AIM, uh, the American Indian Movement, and others that are really trying to publicize and bring more attention to this, but they end up getting heavily suppressed by the federal government itself. The second context here is that we can talk about the horror of however many children end up dying and what the circumstances are. And we don't really know the number yet or the circumstances of those deaths. But we can also talk about that it wasn't just Native American kids, right? We had this problem associated with these schools. But, you know, we also have a history of taking kids from poor people and putting them in, in reform schools. And then those kids being killed and buried secretly and raped and sexually abused and all these things. So it wasn't just violence against Native Americans. It was violence against African-Americans, Latinx, uh, and even poor white Americans. And this is not just against them, but also, you know, you have America's big entry into, you know, global imperialism in uh, the Philippines in the late 1800s where it's becoming a global phenomenon. So I think that we, we absolutely have to look at the violence associated with Native Americans, and we should absolutely look at this report. But we have to understand that it's, 
it's part of a much bigger practice of violence, not just against indigenous people, not just against foreign people, not just against children of minorities, but against scores of people. Yeah, I totally understand um, in a broader context. It's um, in the end, it, it has to be ascribed to the characteristics of the U.S. government, um, if I understand you um, correctly. But today we are focusing on Native Americans. So, um, Harvey, do you think uh, what happened to those children or in a broader sense to all Native Americans are comparable to those in Australia, Australia's indigenous stolen generations and Canada's stolen First Nation children? Yeah, I mean, I believe uh, all three instances stems from a uh, racist outlook and from white supremacist outlook. And uh, that has colored much of our history. It's colored a lot of the history of uh, colonial powers. And uh, we're left with the ashes of this, actually. And part of the ashes are these uh, children who were forced to go to these kind of concentration camp schools and the many who died. And uh, with this legacy that Joseph had talked about of how uh, Native Americans uh, have much worse uh, life outcomes, whether it's economic, whether it's uh, health-wise, whether it's education-wise, and so on. And uh, this really goes back to the beginning of our our country. Uh, Our Constitution mentions Indians uh, only three times, but uh, doesn't really treat them as uh, as full people. And Indians didn't become American citizens actually till 1924. And so before that, they were kind of looked at as independent uh, nations and citizens of those uh, nations. And I was startled to learn in my research uh, that someone that we admire, like Benjamin Franklin, called these people savages, which many people called them uh, these uneducated uh, people who were really the original people on, on the land. Mm. And actually, starting with the President George Washington, the federal government had a two-pronged policy to assimilate Indians, and they wanted to do this uh, in the two ways. The first was obviously to... Uh, rip them from their culture, and these schools are an embodiment of that. And a very second interesting strategy was they wanted to encourage the uh, Native American population to uh, engage in uh, very heavy borrowing. So they were given lots of credit so they could do agricultural projects and things like that. But the hope was not that they would uh, be productive members of society, even the agrarian society of that day, but that they'd be buried in credit and had to sell their ancient lands to the U.S. government in order to survive. So this is a really something that's almost in the United States genetic makeup when you look at it from a historical perspective. And it's quite sickening looking through it in the lens of the 21st century, where unfortunately, 
racism is still and white supremacy are still very much alive in America. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Harvey, then what did the indigenous people do to deserve such a treatment? They were there. They were there. I mean, they're the first people. And so uh, they happened to be there and they got in the way of uh, Western imperialism. I think that's the only thing you can call it. So uh, these Western nations, not uh, uh, from European nations like uh, Portugal, Spain, France, uh, UK, they explored the, the new world. And we call these people Indians because Columbus thought he was finding a Northwest Passage uh, to go to India and to be able to trade with India for all their spices and, and the resources that India had as a fairly prosperous uh, grouping of the uh, nation at, at that time. But really, when these uh, conquerors, conquistadors, whatever you want to call them, came to the New World, they wanted that land. They claimed it for their kings and their sovereigns and queens and their sovereigns. And those people became basically expendable. And many of them, hundreds of thousands and millions of them throughout the Americas died not through warfare, although some did die through warfare, but died because the people who came in from the colonial powers had immunity to a lot of different diseases to which the native populations here were never exposed. And so they died in the millions and uh, their populations were decimated. And uh, probably for somebody who believes in white supremacy, this was a, a wonderful thing because they didn't have to spend money on, on weapons because they were just killed for health reasons. And I think that our hatred of uh, minority groups in America and other colonial associated countries um, is because we're dealing with white supremacy. We're dealing with the looking at certain people as being inferior and when in fact the uh, They had very rich cultures that were different from ours, but at that time and still largely today, uh, we're not into uh, rainbow coalitions, we're we're into white supremacy. But weren't the white people grateful? You know, after all, it was uh, the Native Americans who helped them or share their food, land, and and knowledge of the environment uh, with first the English and then the European settlers would would not be able to have had a safe settlement on this continent. And this Thanksgiving Day, I think it's also related to to that, right, Joseph? Well, I was born on Thanksgiving. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but uh, so I should know something about this. But no, the um, you know that's a lot of myth making, um, a lot of national myth making. First of all, you know, there were dozens, if not hundreds, of, of different groups of Native Americans and, you know, and, and they were spread all over the, all over, let's just say, you know, North America. They lived very different lives. They spoke very different languages. They had very different cultures. 
They were attuned to their local environments. You have the Pueblo Indians in the Southwest who were building these intricate adobe settlements. And then you have the Iroquois in, in the Northeast that are have a very different culture. To give you an example, um, sort of a strange example, but because we don't have the history as well in, in North America as we have in Mexico, when Cortes came to Mexico, to Central America, you had the Aztecs who were dominant, and he allied with groups that the Aztecs were dominating. And so he started playing people off of each other to go in and, and um, uh, oppose the Aztecs and then eventually take control. What we do know is that some of the colonists who came to, the, to what later became the United States uh, faced some resistance. And um, there are some unexplained destructions and, and, and disappearances of some colonies um, in the U.S. That, that remain sort of a mystery that are still being investigated. But there were some cases where where Native Americans did business with, did trading with. Uh, you know, Manhattan was purchased, for example, because I, I don't. You know, we always make this joke that Manhattan was purchased for a few beads, but I think it was largely because the Native Americans really didn't have the concept of property and the idea that they were selling something. Um, what I'm saying is, we we had these ideas that there was some sort of commerce or exchange or support, but I think it's probably a lot more complicated than that. And history seems to to bear that out. Although it is the case that the British, when they first came, their approach with the Native Americans was generally to try to make treaties. It was later when the British lost the Revolutionary War with with, with what became the US, that, um, that this was one of the things that created some of the bad blood uh, it wasn't just the desire of, of the Americans to expand and to take Indian lands, but also because the, the Native Americans had supported the British against American Revolution. So there are, all, there are a lot of little strange things here, um, but I, I think we have to be careful not to, to romanticize it. It was always, it was always complicated and, and, and probably dirty and, and dangerous. And John, your observation well, just as, as Harvey said, I like this word, you know, genetic makeup of American history. This is how America was founded, basically. Uh, you previously asked a question about what has Indians uh, done to deserve this. Well, I mean, I, I guess, you know, it reminds me of the, the Mayflower voyage, you know, the first wave of people who arrived across the Atlantic, being actually well, very well received, warmly received by the Indians. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, it's it's very sad that uh, uh, you know, history has developed in that way. I, I think one thing that uh, I would like to emphasize is that uh, you know the treatment of Indians is inherently um, probably inherent American foreign policy. Uh, you know the entire country's uh, foundation was based on expansion to the west, to the south, and inevitably uh, the Indian population has been victim of that. And we just looked back that uh, the history of how Native Americans were treated. And uh, Joseph touched upon some um, the living conditions of them nowadays. But um, Harvey, as I've mentioned, the population of the first people were Native Americans. Once the dominant group living in uh, North America has lumped from 5 million in 14 92 to some 250,000 today. How are 
their living conditions these days? They're not good. They're terrible, as a matter of fact. And they're subject to the beneficence or trust, which is not very much trust, of the U.S. Department of the Interior. But I think when it comes to Indians, uh, they should be called the Department of the Inferior because the condition of the Indians is far from superior. It is inferior. And as Joseph had mentioned, if you look on many different indicia of uh, how people are doing, how populations are advancing and so on, both economically, socially, politically, and health-wise, the Indians are doing really badly. They're basically ghettoized in these underfunded reservations and uh, they they get terrible uh, education there's a lot of hopelessness in those uh, reservations where these native american people live yeah i suppose some have gotten rich because they're legally allowed to have casinos and they make money off of that but those are the outliers uh, the exception rather than the rule But if you look at where the Native Americans are today, it's pretty much a hopeless situation. Take education, for example. There's a huge dropout rate in reservations education system. Um, uh, The highest dropout rate is uh, younger people, teenagers, basically. Um, And there's about a 30% dropout rate. Very few Native Americans reach higher education. They're purposely given uh, in education and given and directed to uh, what would be considered um, much more working class jobs. So jobs uh, like that require very, very little education. They can become apprenticed and become uh, plumbers or farmers or factory workers or something like that. And so they don't have the wherewithal to uh, achieve whatever whatever's left of the American dream and not very much. Whatever's left of it, they can't because they don't get the education and they're not encouraged to be educated. They're encouraged to do these second and third class citizenship jobs. And part of the reason is our cultural bias. Another reason is that cultural bias leads to having inferior teachers and inferior education system for these uh, people. And I'm afraid that as much as uh, the Secretary of the Interior is doing and as President Biden wants to do, that after this November, when Republicans will probably retake the Congress and possibly in two years after that, uh, retake the presidency, it's going to be like before. And it's going to be like Trump. Trump, who uh, is one of his many mean acts, uh, opened up native lands to exploration by uh, fat cat companies. Trump, who did many uh, racist things, did not believe in uh, America as a a melting pot, but as a uh, money pot, but only for rich people. 
So I think this is part of the story. And uh, Indians are caught in this vicious uh, cycle or circle uh, of never being able to escape from their poverty. And uh, I don't see any change for a long time to come. Yeah, that's also my concern. If this Secretary of the Interior, she's not on this post anymore, would this process, which she called a healing process for Indian country, native uh, Hawaiian community and, and across the U.S., would continue? Joseph, do you share the same concern? I think that we do need to be concerned about it because she's clearly envisioned this as a multi-year and even longer project. I mean, uh, that, that firstly, they've only started the research, that they were underfunded and they didn't have access because of the pandemic to all the things that they wanted to have access to. But, you know, with the findings and then needing, she said, needing to go back to these communities and discuss the findings with the communities, but then also bring in, she said, trauma counseling. So she's clearly talking about a multi-year uh, long-term project. And maybe she can push that far enough into the American consciousness that it would take hold. But I do think we have to put this in the context of the policies, the Trump-like policies, but, but more broadly, the, the Republican policies that we're seeing in a lot of the conservative states that are making it illegal now in public schools to talk about identity politics, to talk about critical race theory or anything that might sort of offend white consciousness or, or white privilege uh, very specifically. That said, I think we need to be cautious. The, the, the word has been used by John and Harvey, and, and I don't think they meant it the way that, that some might interpret it. When we talk about the genetic I don't think they want to suggest that white people or, or American people are genetically racist or, you know, um, prone to, you know, genocidal. Yeah. But but there is something. So the, the word genetic, I think we have to be very, very careful with. Uh, but there is definitely something deeply systemic and institutional that is part of and again, we tend to be very abusive of scientific words, but we could say that if it's not part of the DNA of America, that it's structurally part of the, the, the original ontology or organizational aspects of building up American society and perpetuating these systems of inequality that, you know, produce the killing that we saw uh, a week ago in Buffalo. And we don't yet know what, what killed all the kids in, in Texas. We shouldn't be surprised to find out that, that race has something to do with it at some point. Uh, we don't know yet uh, what the motive is. But, uh, you know, it, it's an ever-present uh, problem. It's clearly very important that Holland does this work. But as, as was noted, it's not clear that it will survive a change in administration. And Biden's in trouble, right? I mean, the, the new poll that was just published a few days ago. His approval rating is 36%. It's almost a certainty that he's going to lose control of the Democrats, will lose control of Congress. She might not get the funding. I mean, even if she stays in the job for the next two and a half years, she might not get the funding from Congress to, to go forward with this, given what we're seeing in terms of uh, Republican approaches to races in, in uh, state politics. The Chat Lounge. 
The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Joseph, do you see any solution to uh, this issue? Why I'm asking this is because the last time when we talked about this uh, racism against Asian Americans, we found that Asian Americans are allied with uh, Pacific Islanders to establish this uh, Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month and uh, Asian American and Pacific Islander Day against bullying and hate. Obviously, uh, Native Americans only got um, 250,000 people, so probably they can form some alliance with other minority, ethnic minorities, to protect their own rights. So the first question, why would Asians and Pacific Islanders be united? The big reason is because a lot of white people can't tell them apart. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Right. Really? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, (laughs) So That's why there was a lot of violence against, let's say, uh, Japanese or even Indians at the beginning of COVID because uh, Trump blamed it uh, on Chinese, but people can't tell the difference. Or why after 9-11 we had Indian Sikhs being attacked as Muslims. But there's a very interesting case study. So, you know, there's a very significant Native American population in Hawaii. And technically they are Pacific Islanders, but they're considered Native Americans. (laughs) So it's kind of this strange group. But the other thing that we have a lot of in Hawaii are people of Asian descent. So there's significant uh, Japanese uh, Filipino, uh, Chinese, and other populations. And one of the things that we, that, you know, under the rubric of multiculturalism, we celebrate this diversity. We, you know, we give government grants to the Filipino Americans and the Japanese Americans and the Chinese. And we, we actually, what we try to do, I mean, this has been alleged in critical theory and critical analysis, that we end up supporting them to differentiate themselves, to not pull together and to find common ground with each other, but actually to compete with each other and to say, okay, I'm Japanese. Don't mistake me for being Chinese or Filipino and have them competing for the same grants. Okay. And then not supporting. So if someone from one ethnic group runs for a public office Maybe people in the Japanese group would rather support a white candidate than a Filipino candidate, right? That there, that there, it creates this sort of strange competition between these different minority groups, and and we see this also not just in the the case of Hawaii, but elsewhere, where there's there's tension and fighting between minority groups. It's not just white against minority, but but also. Um, um, these frictions between the minority groups because they're fighting over, in a sense, the same poverty and the same, the same struggle that they're they're competing with. Just the way, the, the, similar to the way poor workers fight with each other and struggle with each other uh, over jobs and undercut each other. Harvey, um, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders were given a huge boost uh, thanks to President Trump, as I mentioned before, and. It's a matter of fact that as a grouping, they're the fastest growing minority group in America, according to the latest uh, census information. The Indians, on the other hand, 
as you've noted several times, uh, are very few in number. And as we all noted, they're very poor. We have a saying in Washington that money talks and BS walks. So American Indians don't have any political clout, but Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders are rather affluent. And because of that, they're influential. And because they're influential, they have political clout, can get things done. And uh, that's why we have a Secretary of the Interior who is sympathetic to these uh, American Indians because uh, she knows that her ancestors came from Asia themselves. And these Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders uh, are, I think, going to have increasing influence in the American political system. Although, as uh, Joseph pointed out, that this is all maybe irrelevant after uh, near near term future with the Republicans who seem to value only money uh, and not uh, human rights or human uh, dignity. And so, I, I think that. Uh, I think that the Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders are trying their, their best. And we have President Trump uh, to thank for them uh, uniting people. Mm, but do you think um, that will work like uh, Joseph just suggested it might not be working? Yeah, well, they're still relatively small in numbers. But I think to the extent that they can organize, that they'll have more uh, influence because they're prominent in uh, a number of communities are not evenly distributed. So they certainly have had a, a political impact in uh, California, where there's many uh, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. And so I believe in those instances where there are lots of, let's say, uh, Chinese or lots of uh, these groupings, Japanese, uh, Vietnamese, and that many of them have made uh, a good life in America and made a good uh, income and have become financially successful, that, yeah, I think in some areas they'll be uh, very politically influential. On the national level, you know, not so much because they're scattered and they're still relatively small in number. But I think uh, depending on the venue, on the size of the jurisdiction, whether it's a local as opposed to national, that, that they'll have more impact because they're organized and they're organizing. And I think that that's uh, very important. And some people say, actually, that in the Georgia elections uh, in 2020, that the Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders were the minority group that put the Democrats over the top, especially in the two Senate races. Uh, and so I think that's a, a case of where organization made a big difference. If the prospect for, for Native Americans to develop further uh, minimal, does that mean they or this community is destined to shrink, if you will, in the U.S. society? Joseph? You know, uh, let me make a, a little correction. I think earlier sure. we were saying that there was maybe 250,000 uh, Native Americans in the United States. And from what I know, the number, the, the bottom number, there's an estimate, and the bottom estimate is two and a half million. And, and the, the upward estimate is six million. And, and why there's such a discrepancy is because there's a lot of debate about 
who gets to count themselves as a Native American. I mean, we've had uh-huh. you know, these we've had these scandals in in the U.S. People claiming to be Native American. Elizabeth Warren, uh, a senator, for example, someone who who faced a lot of grief over this because there are affirmative action policies and and all sorts of things that that, that follow with it. But I think one of the things that that because and this kind of picks up on something that that Harvey was saying. So the minimum number of south of east and southeast Asians in the US right now is somewhere around 20 to 22 million. And the number of native americans somewhere between depending on how they how they count and how they identify and whatnot somewhere between two and a half and six million now this is significant and i think this is the biggest reason why biden because i I, i'm not a big fan of biden i don't think he's a a wonderful human being i don't think he's committed to doing good for his fellow man i don't take that as as an assumption given what i've seen in some of his other policy making but uh he does know how to count and what he knows is that a lot of the elections in the last several years have been decided by a million to two million to three million votes. Okay, um, and and depending on where these votes are concentrating, so if he can get those two and a half to six million votes by having someone like Deb Holland, who is trying to, you know, make a big show out of out of supporting. Uh, Native Americans, that may be in, in a highly polarized political climate like the United States, that might decide an election for him. Because everyone now is trying to build these little micro uh, groups and, and and pull them into coalitions to, to in these highly polarized circumstances. In terms of, of the future of Native Americans, I'm an optimist in several respects, but but I'm a, I'm a pessimist about where the U.S. is headed in the near term and in the intermediate term and the long term. Uh, I think the U.S. is beset with systemic crises, including how we've dealt with Native Americans. And I see where the economy, you know, we heard a lot from Davos this week. We see what is happening with the economy right now. We see the likelihood of BA4 and BA5 uh, successive waves hitting the U.S. with with the new COVID outbreaks in, in the coming months. We know the U.S. has basically laid down with respect to to COVID. So I'm not optimistic about many things related to the U.S. And who ends up paying the price for that disproportionately? It's the people who are already the most vulnerable. And the people who are most vulnerable in the United States are the Native Americans, right, followed by the Latina and and the African-Americans. Um, they're not important so, at all, probably to you know the politicians. I think they're I think they're important in so much as they count as votes. But I think I think as as if we're if we're really at risk of, it, of being in a downward spiral, you know, when I was in in uh, Memphis last year or in, in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one, in the worst days of COVID, when uh, you know most of our our local industry was shut down, people were hungry. There were food lines. There was spiraling crime. It wasn't that that the government wanted these people to suffer. I mean, the local government was Democrat and and, and African American. It was because it collapsed, right? And I'm saying that if if we're at risk for these new collapses, as as appears to be the case later this year, 
then again, it will be the Native Americans who suffer, not because of a, of a necessarily a lack of desire or initiative, but just because everything's going to hell in a, in a handbasket. Mm. And Harvey, maybe last question. God help those who help themselves, right? If right. Na Native Americans uh, want to achieve equal rights and obtain the development they deserve or they need, what do you think are the most pressing issues for them to, to tackle or from the perspective of, of the Native Americans themselves? I don't think you can point to any one thing because these are all interrelated problems. So I could say, of course, education is the most important because education gives uh, people skills in order to uh, achieve a better situation in life and to uh, be all that they uh, aspire to be. But uh, that takes money and the money isn't there. Uh, we need to be healthy in order to uh, have a good life, in order to have a good uh, personal life and a work life. But uh, the money just um, isn't there. And so if you take so many of these different dimensions, uh, the money isn't there. And because the uh, Native Americans are small in number, uh, they're probably not going to have a great political influence except in in local areas and, and maybe some committed public uh, servants will be able to make a difference on the national level but when you think that deb holland was one of only two members of the house of only one of uh, one of two female native american representatives in the house of representatives ever that means that those small numbers those single digit numbers <laughs> they're not going to have a, much of a chance to influence people, especially when you have one political party that basically believes uh, in kind of uh, sink or swim, uh, who believes in social Darwinism, who doesn't believe in helping people. So I think that those people are in the ascendancy, these uh, people who just our very uh, bottom line. And I think that has terrible implications, not only for them, the Native Americans, uh, but also for America as a whole. And I believe that this notion of a melting pot or uh, more like a, a stew is not working anymore. And that we need a, some fundamental changes in our form of governance because uh, we're not gonna make it. We're, uh, we're not doing very well at the moment and in the foreseeable future, in my view. Mm, and Joseph? Yeah, there, you know, one of the things that, that uh, Harvey brought up earlier was, you know, the Trump proposal to, to open up Indian lands to development. And, and this, is, this is kind of a strange thing, because on the one hand, when you look at a lot of the conservative scholars who talk about the problems facing Native Americans, one of the things that they point to is that all the Indian lands are owned and managed by the federal government, and that historically, the federal government has not allowed those lands to be developed in ways that benefited the people who are forced to live on them. Um, so 
you know, so there are a lot of Native Americans who would like to uh, take advantage of the mineral rights uh, to to um, to develop the lands that they live on, um, but are limited by that by federal law. Um, and but because they're governed more by federal law than state law, they which and it's state law that governs casinos, they're allowed to build casinos so they can they can you know make these sort of BS money making schemes on the land that they that they live on, but they can't actually make the land profitable. The problem, of course, is the whole corporate raider <laughs> sort of thing, which is you know if you just let these companies come in and start exploiting the land, uh, they'll tear it all up, they'll make a huge mess. And it's unlikely that that money would actually substantially benefit, um, or there's no guarantee that that money would be fair or that it would get to the people who deserved it because they're already having problems associated with how do we distribute um, income associated with casinos? How do we prevent people from uh, spending this money in in self-destructive ways? So there is potentially this solution and there is a desire in the reservations for moving forward, but the way that either side would actually solve this problem creates new problems. So um, theoretically there's a solution possible, but in, in terms of practice and certainly in terms of political polarization, nothing right now. Mm, indeed, uh, it's, it's a long-term issue and we do hope um, Native Americans won't be overlooked during the development of the society, just like uh, what Joseph said. Who's going to pay for it? It will be the entire nation that's going to pay the price because it will eventually, or may eventually, fire back if the problem is not solved properly. And on that note, we wrap up today's chat. And many thanks to Harvey Zoden, Senior Fellow at the Center for China and Globalization and Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics, East China Normal University in Shanghai. And last but not least, uh, Dr. John Gunn, who unfortunately couldn't stay till the very end due to um, internet connection glitches. Thanks to you all for your insightful opinion. You can leave a review for us either on the topic or on the show. Please subscribe to The Chat Lounge for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Tuyin. Thank you for listening. More to come here at The Chat Lounge next week. Sideline Story brings you all things sports related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world.